Greetings and salutations. My name is Tyler Ellenick, and this is Raven's Rule, the podcast that chronicles all things 90s Canrock. This episode is part one of a chat I had with Jason Plum of Regina, Saskatchewan's The Waltons. So you're the first um, guest I've had on the podcast from Saskatchewan since Todd Kearns early on in the history of the podcast. So I'm curious, can you describe what the late 80s were like in Regina? Musically, musically speaking, uh, you know, I had turned, I guess I turned 20 in 88 and, uh, you know, I was actively playing, you know, clubs and, and whatever, whatever place would have us. And, uh, it was pretty vibrant. I mean, we kind of cut our teeth on opening for every act that came through town. We had an arrangement with a, with a, small club here in town called then it was called the, the um well first it was the schnitzel house mm-hmm. and then uh became the venue and uh we rehearsed there during you know during days and uh it wasn't it wasn't very rare that there was you know a week that would go by where there was you know probably four or five shows a week like from tuesday till saturday night sometimes even on sunday depending on who was touring and if they needed to fill in a spot in their itinerary there was a lot of bands coming through, you know, and uh, we just op- we opened for all of them. You know, that was our that was our that was our, our rent being paid for being allowed to rehearse in this place. Uh, and our stuff was already there. So it was pretty easy for us just to move out of the way and let the headliner set up. And um, and there was, you know, there was a few pretty really cool spots to play. The, the club on uh, Broad Street, 1850 Broad, it's called the Cult Club or the Culture Club, which is the uh, um, Sask Cultural Exchange Society. Um, that was their club, and uh, they were they were a great place for us to play because all of our underage friends could get in because it was a private club. I mean, I think it was kind of off the books, but they were pretty lenient when it came to filling the place up with young people that were going to buy a lot of their liquor. <laughs> so that was a fun spot. That was a fun spot for us. Um, and uh, I mentioned the venue. It was kind of our mainstay. Um, the student union, the university was putting on a lot of shows. Um, this is in the old, the old building, the old, and with the lazy owl, the small owl attached to the uh, student union building. Yeah, you know, it just seemed like, I mean, we were just getting into it, so I didn't know any different. It was like, oh, bands come through town, and we get to meet them and play with them and and hang out with them, and um, we were really lucky to to hook up with some pretty amazing artists that um, I think saw in us our 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 willingness and our drive to uh, become a better band and, and to be flexible with the crowd and um, to play the kind of material that, you know, like we opened, for, I think our very first show was opening for the Goo Dolls, you know, and we weren't mm. even way back then. That was, we were in, that was in my cover band days. We were in a band called Neurotic Paperboy that did uh, just a lot of, a lot of covers and, uh, you know, a few originals, but, you know, we, we started off in a strange spot opening for a sort of punk rock band um and then from there we opened from everybody from uh god cowboy junkies to tragically hit many many times to um sky diggers to you name it more or less every 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 band that came through the venue in the late 80s and very early 90s uh we were we were there and if we weren't playing opening then we were serving bar and uh, busting tables or doing sound for the opening act or whoever hmm. you recorded a couple demos before before uh, like my tractor so i'm curious um what was it like to um 
record a demo in Saskatchewan knowing that, you know, it's not as big of a uh, center as Toronto or Calgary or Vancouver or Montreal? Or... Well, um, I mean, there were a few studios uh, around the city and uh, we, we spent some time up in Saskatoon at a place called, I think it was called Studio West. And it was kind of outside of Saskatoon, this really cool little ranch set up. And uh, in town here was a place called Touchwood um, that's still around, actually. Yeah. It's probably one of the oldest studios going now. And uh, our, our very first studio um, experience was a place called Inner City, which became Talking Dog, I guess now, but it's on Winnipeg Street. And uh, we, we got hired as a side band with this uh, country singer to go in and, and be her backing band. And we'd never been in the studio. Hmm. And uh, that, that was a real studio experience because they had a big, I'm not even sure what kind of console they had. I think it might've been an API or something. It was a big console, you know, big lounge. And it was everything that you'd ever seen on television as far as what a <laughs> recording studio looked like, you know? So we used, we used those spaces to sort of would, I didn't, I didn't even remember how we afforded to pay for it. I think, I think a lot of it was being done with uh, younger engineers that were just trying to get uh, their chops up and uh, we would just, you know, pay a token fee and, uh, and get a couple songs recorded here, a couple songs recorded there. And then we were, I guess we released two, two EPs is what they would be. Cause I don't think they were full, like 10 song. I don't even remember what was on them to tell you the truth. I remember the names. Um, I think one of them was demo sandwich. And the other one might've just been called the Waltons Waltons. And I mean, we use these as promotional uh, vehicles. We sold them at shows and stuff like that. But I think our drive to have these were to send them out to, to clubs and to, uh, you know, to try and get an agent or, or whatever the hell we were trying to do back then. I just, I love that time of our career because we didn't have a clue what was going on. We didn't know anything about the business. I mean, we didn't even know that it was possible for us just to drive up to Saskatoon and play a couple shows. Like that wasn't even on our radar um, until uh, I guess it was, God, it was, I think it was Pursuit of Happiness that were through and they didn't have an opener in Saskatoon and, they, and we opened for them here and they liked us and we got along. They said, hey, you guys want to come up to Saskatoon and open for us tomorrow? <laughs> so we did and we drove up there and we played at uh, Louis and met Spiro, who turned <laughs> in to be a great, great champion of ours and helped us out a lot. And uh, from then on, we went, wow, this, this doesn't have to be just us playing in Regina every night to the same people that are getting tired of play, hearing us play because it was the old joke, you know, like, what are you doing tonight? You're going to go out and see the Waltons again, you know? <laughs> so, but we, you know, we didn't care. We were just, we were trying to get, I think somebody, somebody told us, somebody told us once at one of these uh, SAS music industry weekend things, just, uh, you know, getting some feedback on the band. It's like, oh yeah, you know, not a bad band. They need a hundred shows. And at that point went, Oh my God, a hundred shows. How are we ever going to do that? Like we're, we're probably on our like fifth show. <laughs> and uh, you know, so we took it to heart. It's like, okay, let's do a hundred shows. And, and you know, I think before we even toured Toronto the first time we had probably done at least 200. So, you know, we turned into a little band that, uh, you know, sounded pretty good as a unit. Now those 200 gigs, were you then touring like in Manitoba, in Alberta as well, before you made the move to Toronto? Like, did you expand that way? No, 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 I don't think so. I think it was mostly Regina and, and Saskatoon, but mostly Regina. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Like we were, but we were, we were really playing like probably three nights a week to make that, to make that work. And uh, I don't know, it was, it was really good for us. Just it's, it's what, what turned us into a group. And it was a different climate back then where you had, you had to be, you had to sound like a, you know, you had to be able to play. It was, you had to be a band that did, that did something. Um, it's different than, than now. 
where you can uh, you know show up with some technology and sound pretty good and most and most people don't really know the difference anymore mm-hmm. so nineteen ninety you guys decided to make the move to Toronto. What kind of precipitated that was that because of some of the friendships you made with people like the cowboy junkies and the pursuit of happiness and tragically hip and sky diggers, or was it something entirely different uh you know it, it totally it totally was the encouragement of bands that uh, were continuing to come through. And like, I think when the hip came through their third, their third time, Gord had just said to me, he said, you know, JC, you gotta, you guys could come out to Toronto. You guys would do really well out there. And at the time it seemed like, Oh God, Toronto's so far away. How could we possibly, how do you, how do you navigate that? You know, like the expanse of just going out and, and he, he just said, he said to me, he said, well, man, if you ever come to Toronto, you have a place to stay. No problem. Hmm. And uh, it's funny because I, t- I took him up on that actually as uh, huh. as time went by. But um, and and uh, group like the Skydiggers, um, who we met, uh, I think they were I think they were opening for um, Andrew Cash, and Andrew Cash was a bit of a he had he was turning into a bit of a deal at, the, at that point, um, like a like a big deal because he'd signed to Island Records and uh, was commanding a pretty good audience and was touring with uh, Melissa Etheridge. <laughs>
Um, he ended up marrying a, a woman from Regina, a wonderful, wonderful woman from an amazing family named Sandy Pandya, who uh, in her own right, um, be, just slightly before our time, was a, was a promoter here in the city um, putting on, she may have actually put on Cowboy Junkie's very first show and oh, wow. 10,000 Maniacs, 5440 uh, that were playing at her establishment, which was called, I think it was called Cafe, or the Bebop Cafe, I think it was called originally, and then became the Cafe Agogo. Um, and she was just a huge music fan. Anyway, she ended up marrying Andrew and moving to Toronto um, we did a little bit of work with Andrew in the studio at CBC. Um, he produced a couple of tracks of ours and got to know him. And, um, he encouraged us as well to come out. And Sandy had taken a job at a talent booking agency. Um, and she encouraged us as well. But I think, I think all the while, all these people were just like, yeah, you guys have got something just keep working at it. You know, like you'll, you'll get there. And, uh, we, we, kind of traveled out to Toronto first just to try it out um played some pretty terrible shows actually it wasn't it wasn't really encouraging just because Toronto's a huge city and there's mm-hmm. lots going on so who who I think there was a few people from from Regina that were going to uh Ryerson or U of T or something that showed up at the show and that was about it <laughs> but uh you know I think that I don't at least for my my part as my part in the band um I decided that we needed to go, as I said, to go piss with the big boys is what, what we're going to do. It's like we felt, we felt like we'd done everything we could do in Regina. Um, we felt like we were writing some pretty good songs and, and, and playing and singing really well. And, you know, when, when Andy Mays or, or Gord would say, hey, you guys got to come to Toronto, we'll help you out, then we had to take them up on that. So I, I, I think I remember I was actually – told a fib to my bandmate saying, look, if we go out to Toronto, we'll, we'll, we'll get signed to a record deal within six months. <laughs> and uh, so I was really hoping. And it took a little bit longer than that, but it finally it came true eventually. Now, when a transplanted band like yourself moves from one city to a neck to another, is it then difficult to build like momentum up to find your footing? Because, you know, like you said, bigger city means more bands and you know more places to play, but more bands vying for those spots. How difficult was it to yeah. get from those shows where you just had a few local university kids coming to building to a point where you're playing the ultrasound, you're playing Lee's Palace or whatever, you know what I mean? Yeah, it, um, I think it just was, It was well, I could put it on, to, it's, it's two, two, two or three bands that made it work for us. It was uh, Andrew Cash and the Ambassadors and Skydiggers and uh, biggest of all, Tragically Hip, because mm-hmm. when we got to town, and I called Gord from the airport saying, uh, remember when you said I could stay with you? Uh, <laughs> I need a place to stay. And it was just me because I was out there scouting a place for, for us to live. Because we didn't like how we're going to pay for a place to live in Toronto. Ended up finding some old warehouse space that the four of us lived in and it worked out okay. But um, they, they really laid the way. Like I think our first, our first show was the day we all arrived in Toronto was actually at the horseshoe opening for Junk House. Huh. And, and uh you know, so we met those, and I think it was like it was a Sunday night or Monday because they hadn't really gotten onto the map at that point themselves. And uh, I don't know, we felt we felt really good because in the room when Andrew was there, I remember he was there buying. I think he was looking at a guitar. He was gonna he was gonna get off of the guitar player Danny Aiken, who was a guitar uh, a salesman and, and collector. And uh, you know, just to, just to see a couple of faces that we recognized at, at the Horseshoe was was pretty cool, and we felt 
I don't know, at least I felt pretty at home right away. And we just, we just worked at it, you know, like if we had a show, uh, another memorable show was opening for Sky Diggers at the Alma Combo. And we really looked forward to that because it was the Alma and it was legendary and Mick Jagger had been there with uh, Maggie Trudeau and all the, you know, all the lore around the, the Alma Combo. Um, we just, we'd, we'd get out, we'd poster hard, um, and just, I mean, most of all, just show up and play a really good show and play our, play our asses off and, and be appreciative that uh, we got these opportunities. I think there was a little bit of blowback from a few local bands just because hmm. we had just arrived and next thing you know, we're getting these great Friday night, Saturday night opening spots. And uh, the real tipping for us probably was opening for the hip at the, um, at the forum, uh, the Ontario Place Forum. They had three nights um, in a row sold out, of course. Um, Road Apples, I think, had just come out or was doing really well in any case. And uh, they offered us one of the nights. And uh, at that point, I think the press sort of wondered, okay, who, who the hell are the Waltons and why? Well, what are they doing on stage with the hip? You know, sort of an unknown band. Because I think the other nights were, were fairly no, well-known acts that had been around for a while that had kind of earned that spot. Mm-hmm. But um, I think Gordon, the guys knew that we were out here working really hard and that we had earned it, just not within Toronto. Because when they... Uh, when they were traveling across back and forth, they, they would ask us to, to do all of their Saskatchewan shows. So we'd do Regina, Saskatoon and Moose Jaw if there was. So we'd, you know, get to spend four, three or four nights with those guys. And we formed pretty good friendships. They were just good guys and really champions of, of, uh, of young musicians and continued to be till the end of their, of their uh, touring days. Now, when you spend that much time with uh, a band like the Tragically Hip, you know, off stage or, you know, like say, staying with Gord for a short time, are you guys like, like just jamming around for fun as well? Just like, you know, or is this music uh, just a completely separate thing when you guys are off just hanging out as friends? Yeah. You know, not really. I, I mean, it's surreal when I think about it now be, mm-hmm. because at, at, at the time it was just, you know, these, these cool guys that live in Toronto and they're an amazing band and, you know, just staying at his place. I remember a couple of the other guys came over one night and we ordered some pizza and uh, they had just had a test pressing of uh, road apples. Hmm. So they were full of these, you know, these, uh, these stories of, of recording down in, in uh, New Orleans and, and uh, you know, just, just sitting around listening to that, you know, I think about it now, it's like, that's, that's crazy that that happened to me. But at the time oh. it was just like, you know, these guys are good talking, mostly talking about hockey and golf. <laughs> Jace, who's your hockey team? Uh, I like the wings. Oh, awesome logo. Awesome logo. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, no, there wasn't a lot of, a lot of jam jam at that point. You know, just, it was, I think they were just getting ready to start touring. And uh, on that little trip, I was there by myself just to try and find a place for us to live. So. And so after getting those gigs, uh, like you said, the three opening for the hip at uh, the forum and then, the hell the sky days were giving you and, and junk house and whatnot. At what point are you then like, how is that search for that record label, that record deal going? Well, um, we, we were just set more on trying to get a weekend night, uh, spot, like to get a, a Friday, even a Thursday night show that uh, in anywhere on queen street, hmm. Thursday, Friday or Saturday night shows, which you could only really get if you could sell them out, you know, like that's just the way it was. And maybe it still is. I'm not, I'm not even too sure. But, uh, so it's just trying to keep playing and keep, you know, we did, we would do a residency uh, for like a month of Tuesdays 
um, at the, I think that's when we first fell, fell in at the ultrasound. I'm not, I can't even remember how we met Yvonne, but she, uh, she took to us right away and she sort of made us a little bit of a project. So, uh, you know, we just kept playing, kept playing and we would get the odd opening spot here and there. And, um, where, you know, I think word of mouth spread pretty good. Um, we saw our crowds for sure increase like over a month of Tuesdays by the fourth Tuesday, I think things were doing pretty well, um, which we, which we felt really good about just because, you know, it wasn't going the other way. And as long as people keep coming and keep coming, then it's going to happen. And as far as a record deal uh, was concerned, Sandy was really guiding us, uh, Sandy Pandya, um, who, you know, who became our manager, her and her partner, um, skinny William Tent. I think they knew, they knew the, the, the path that, that, you know, the, the, the series of events that, that happened in order to get a deal and you're not going to get a record deal until you're selling places out and um, you know, and people, well, as soon as one record company is interested, then all of a sudden everybody is, but uh, you know, we, we decided that, you know, just making our own independent record was probably the best thing to do. Uh, um, low to low was just in the middle of doing theirs. Um, actually, Steve Stanley did our artwork for, for like my tractor, he helped put it all together. And we decided, okay, this is a way to supplement some income. Let's just let's just take some of these recordings that we've started and uh, see if we can get a producer to help work with us. And we were lucky enough to work with a guy named John Switzer, who had worked with Andrew, um, had worked with uh, Jane Sibbery, and uh, he was a fan. So, you know. Uh, he, he, he helped us get some songs together. Uh, I think we did a couple of recordings at the CBC on Young Street. Just, and I remember doing vocals in my basement. Uh, and I'd moved in with a woman in Hamilton. I remember doing some vocal parts there with a little multi-track recorder. Man, again, it's funny. I hadn't even really thought about this. I still, I can't think of how we even paid for some of this stuff. <laughs> um, I just don't think, it probably just wasn't that expensive, you know. Yeah, I think maybe we did get some grant money. For sure, actually, there was some factor money involved. But, uh, yeah, that wasn't my department. I was just the songwriter. <laughs> you said Stephen Stanley helped with the artwork. Did he do the uh, the cover drawing for Tractor? No, actually, I did that drawing. Um, and he, he, he brought it into to Photoshop and sort of shifted stuff around and helped with the uh, with the lettering to, to make the lettering work and uh, all of that. Um, but, no, I remember, uh, yeah, I drew that uh, at our kitchen table. And, uh, and Yvonne... Matzel, who I referred to from the ultrasound, the booker there, her son, Morgan, was quite young at the time. And we told him we were going to call the record like my tractor. We said, we need some kids drawing, uh, some kids handwriting. Would you mind, you know, taking this crayon and, and just how would you how would you make this this phrase like my tractor? And uh, the spelling and the, everything that came out is exactly how he did it. I think he must have been only like five or six or something and uh that's when the e got left off the like and uh became a whole other thing is it like or lick my tractor that was the the, the quest that and uh, who in the band is john boy those are the those were the two main questions as we would do our endless press circuits i think ian blurton was was telling a story where he saw gordon the record store or something like that and they were both debating if it was like or lick that was part, I guess that was part of the charm and it was, you know, made it stand out because there was this confusion and what a weird phrase that is, lick my tractor, like what the hell does that mean? Uh, I mean, we never, we never claimed to be farmers or anything like that, but we, 
I mean, I think consciously we played up the, the Prairie Yokel end of it. It was just like that. Why not? That's, that's what we'll do. Um, and funny enough on Queen street at the time, there was a real sort of fashion movement of, of pretty, I don't know, I just call it hoser, you know, like dry <laughs> dinner jackets, jean jackets, trucker caps, and sort of like combat boots and uh, rolled up jeans and this kind of a look, but yeah, I, you know, the lick like thing, uh, it was really as simple as that. We asked a, a young man to uh, spell it and that's, that's how it came out. So we thought we'd leave it. Interesting. So once that record is pressed, you know, then you're just selling it from stage or are you trying to get it into like sound the record man or HMV on young or. Yeah. Well, I mean, live was the primary thing, but uh, Sam Sam's was amazing because they stocked indie indie stuff, and not just in Toronto, but they 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 stocked it across the country, you know. Hmm. So they would buy some some, and depending on how it was doing in Toronto, I guess for us, that would determine how many they would ship out to other stores. But we didn't have any national air airplay or anything like that, or I think we had one. I can't even remember. I think we did one video uh, for the first single colder than you that got picked up on like indie street or something on much music and, and got a little bit of play, but nothing, nothing too major, but yeah, it was live. Live was the primary thing. And, and, and we sold a lot of them, you know, um, people, we were pretty lucky with the merchandise stuff uh, with our shirts and, and hats. And uh, we took a page out of the naked ladies book because they were just killing it with the merchandise. So, but well, that, that seems like some revenue, and uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know exactly what the final number was that we had sold. It was quite a few. It was like I think it was over ten thousand we had sold independently, which at the time was, you know, pretty pretty decent. And funny enough, even like now in this day and age, it's amazing. <laughs> it should be a it should be a platinum record if it's ten thousand copies. You know? <laughs> so when you sell ten thousand records independently, uh, at this point, record labels have to start taking guys out for dinner or something. I mean, do they start yeah. taking notice at those kind of numbers? <laughs> well, you know, a couple of key things happened. Uh, I mean, aside from just um, selling, selling that amount of records and obviously our following was growing. Um, we started, we hooked up with uh, an agent named Jack Ross, who was at the agency, I believe at the time. And uh, he was, so he was getting us more shows uh, around Ontario and into Quebec. And so we were starting to tour uh, you know, a little more regionally. And uh, we opened for Bare Naked Ladies in Montreal. And uh, um, you know what? I'm forgetting a major piece of this as well. I'll get back to the Bare Naked Ladies thing sure. in a second. Yeah. But um, uh, Record Station in Toronto, CFNY, was massive for us because they actually started playing our independent record. Hmm. And that that really, really pushed things uh, along pretty quickly. Um, I think, you know, I think a couple of weeks after we had, had released it, they were starting to, to spin a couple of songs and that went over into Buffalo, New York, which, you know, Buffalo was, was massive for us. We went down there. I remember the first time we went down there, we'd never been to Buffalo and we played a show and it was packed and mm -hmm. people knew all the words and it's like Americans, who would have thought, you know, but of course they're getting <laughs> CFNY from across Lake Ontario and they're, they're, they're keen on Canadian music because at the time there was a lot of pretty cool stuff going on in Canada. So they, they, excuse me, they were drawn to it. Um, but yeah, when we opened for BNL in Montreal, um, Ed and the guys watched us and saw us. And uh, I think 
I think Ed in particular just fell in love with us uh, kind of instantly. And, uh, you know, they, they were, they were kind of indie gods at that point. They're still, I think, I don't know how many they had sold at that point of their yellow cassette, but mm-hmm. tens of thousands. And uh, they were, their, their star was definitely on the rise. Um, and we started doing more shows with them um, at their request, get the Waltons. We want the Waltons to open for us. Uh, it was a really good match musically. They, they, you know, we got their crowd going and, you know, our music complimented theirs and vice versa. And, um, uh, they, I think then they, then they won the CFNY battle of the bands competition. Uh, they won a hundred grand and went into the studio to make their record Gordon. Um, and, you know, announced a nationwide theater tour and asked us to do it with them. And at that point, I think, I think labels were sniffing as it was, but at that point it was a slam dunk for them. They went, well, we can't let this, these, they can't let this band, they were losing money. I mean, they could have been sold our, selling our records. So yeah, we got dined, wind and dined pretty hard for, for a little while there, but we settled with, uh, with Warner's um, because I guess they had, I, I wasn't involved in the negotiations. I didn't see the deals from the other labels. I know Polygram was interested. Um, they sent us, that was pretty good. They sent us a, a, a box of CDs. We asked for the Kiss discography. And sure enough, the, the next day, these like 15 CDs show up and it's like, whoa, this is heavy. But yeah, Warner's, Warner's kind of won the deal. And uh, yeah, we, you know, they, then there was a big press release uh, in conjunction with the Naked Ladies tour. So every city we went to with those guys, uh, we would do probably two or three hours of, of media every day. And um, yeah, things started to roll from there pretty heavily. You said earlier that you hadn't really toured. I mean, you know, when you were, when you guys were living in Regina. So at this point, going on the road as a band, was that a difficult transition to then, you know, drive from city to city and spend that much time together in a car and, you know, that kind of dynamic, which was kind of new for you guys? Yeah, we, I mean, we had done enough of it, um, you know, that, that we knew the rules of the road and, and how to, how to, how to navigate our way on the highways safely and how not to stay out too late to, uh, to make it work. Although, man, we were only like 20, 21. So it was twenty twenty two. So we were, you know, we were having a good time, but, you know, I think we knew that, I think we knew the routine. It was, it was difficult for us. Um, touring with an, with an act that were on a bus because, you know, they, they were able to sleep all night as we would drive all night and the schedule would be kind of crazy sometimes because we'd have to be in the next city for a lot of these morning shows, like, uh, you know, morning news appearances and that kind of thing. So we'd have to leave that night, drive overnight, then go do these TV things. It was tough, but I mean, we didn't, I didn't complain about it. That's for sure. Now, once you sign a deal with Warner, are they, um, you know, with your independent release already kind of packaged and you've been selling that, you know, 10,000 copies, do they want to just put their stamp on it and send it out? Or are they, are they asking you to change the artwork, change the sequencing? I think it was really as simple as they just repackaged it with their logo. Hmm. I remember we did a remix of the second single, which was uh, In the Meantime.
but aside from that, I don't, I don't think they, no, they, they didn't do anything. We changed the thank yous on the, uh, on the packaging to reflect, you know, some of the people that had helped us at Warner's and, and that kind of thing. But no, it was, it was really straightforward. They just, I think they just saw that it was like, it wasn't broken. So why fix it? What was kind of the approach to music videos at that point? And can you maybe um, compare and contrast doing a, a music video independently and doing one with the backing of a major label behind you? Well, I mean, the, the major difference is that the major label ones would all get played and at least, you know, start out at least in light rotation. Um, you know, before that, we had done some videos. I think they're still out there somewhere. We actually, like like small independent videos, we did a few here in Regina, even with some uh, film students. Um, and uh, Factor, Video Fact, I think was the grant. And I think they would match, match, I can't remember what it was. It wasn't much. It was like $5,000 or something like that. Um, and you know, when you had to shoot on film, that wasn't a massive budget. Mm-hmm. Um, other big change was, you know, um, just the budgets. Cause I think the, I think the, in the meantime, video was like over a hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollars, um, to shoot a video, which sounds crazy to me now, <laughs> Yeah, but you know, they were, they were, they were all on film. So it was, uh, it was a different thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, you you would have all these treatments that would come in, and you got to pick the director you wanted to work with. A guy named Stephen Scott was pretty popular back then. He was doing a lot of videos, and and you kind of wanted to work with the guy whose videos were getting a lot of the airplay. So uh, so we, we we went with him for a couple of videos, and uh, I can't even remember the names of. Uh, oh, Andrew McNaught was McNaughton, I think his name was. Yeah, that's great right. photographer. Um, he was doing a few videos, so we did some stuff with him. And, uh, yeah, videos, I don't know. I never really enjoyed them just cause it was such a long day of just sitting and really doing nothing. And then when you were doing something, you were pretending to, to sing and play these songs. And I always felt like a pretty big phony poser, but knew that it was really important and necessary, um, to get your music heard. So, um, yeah. I, and I've never been much of a fan of myself on, on screen. So. I was trying to find those videos on YouTube and stuff. There's, I don't think any, anybody has them uploaded. It's interesting. Do you guys still have uh, those archived? You know, I've got a box of uh, like three quarter inch tape and some um, some beta SP tapes that I'm pretty sure that those videos are on there. I, and I know Warner's would have them, and Much Music would have, like City TV would have them uh, on on file somewhere. I, I mean. I guess if somebody cared enough, they would just upload it and do it. And once in a while, something comes up that's interesting. It's like, oh yeah, that's that's. True. But you know, music videos would be a no-brainer. Um, not to mention, you know, the dozens of, of TV spots that we did, like mm-hmm. the Rita McNeil show and the Ralph Ben Murdy show. Anything that CBC had on, uh, we got to go on and do that. Or um, you know, uh, Vicky Gabbro or or, or Dinny Petty, like. All these right, right, daytime right. shows that, that we did the circuits, we did them all, you know, and uh, yeah, very little of that stuff is available online, which you know doesn't break my heart, but <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's always it's always interesting for me to to see it. My parents were great archivists of that kind of stuff, so there's there's VHS stuff of of all of our not all of our but a lot of our uh, much music appearances, our drop-ins, and with Steve Anthony and uh, and whoever would be doing the interview. Um, yeah, because we lived like we lived on Queen Street, like we were we were just part of the Queen Street sort of scene, and um, it was a it was a pretty amazing part of my life that uh, I didn't uh, I didn't appreciate as much I don't think back then as I do looking back on it now. So, um, 
once you have those hundred thousand dollar videos getting played on much music and you know you have warner behind you um what is the kind of approach touring that album are you are they putting you as more plum opening spots are they putting you out there as a headliner uh, are they going to the u.s just touring canada what was their kind of approach to marketing and playing that record live well, I think that they, we were selling enough as a, as a support group because we were kind of media darlings. So every city we went to, we would get, you know, a good entertainment spot uh, in the paper and uh, these TV spots that I mentioned before. Um, the two real notable tours on that record would have been the, the Bare Naked Ladies tour, obviously, and uh, the Blue Rodeo tour that we did with them nationally um, for... Um, Five Days in July, I think was the name of the record. Like an amazing record. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that that really helped us just sort of maintain it. The downside of it all, you know, to be honest, was that, that, we, that we stayed on the road in Canada for probably two years touring that record and just supporting it because it was good. You know, we saw our audiences growing and growing and growing. And, just, uh, and then, you know, and, the sales growing as a support act. And then we did do our own acts and, and took out, uh, it was our turn to take out um, other bands and, and help out others. And, and uh, you know, so, so we just sort of reaped, reaped the rewards of being a popular Canadian band and played every university in Asian Canada five times. And yeah, we just, I, I feel like we really milked it to, to, to death and uh, people's attention spans weren't like they are now, which is zero, but they weren't really long either back then um and i don't know i just get this feeling that people kind of got tired of us in canada because we were absolutely everywhere um for you know for a solid year and a half anyways and to answer your question about the u.s um we didn't do a lot of u.s stuff um at all really it was buffalo rochester um you know upstate new york kind of stops you know and the and the occasional like i think we did the the uh nme the, the music festival in new york city once and yes we didn't really and that's that's one of my regrets is that we never made that leap to the u.s um at that point um we eventually did start going to the u.s quite a bit but it was uh on the second record and uh second record that yielded a lot more worldwide touring interesting um We'll talk about the second record in just a minute, but um, I'm curious, were you pushing the label to um, expand your touring base to tour outside of Canada as well? Yeah, you know, I think our attitude in the band was, I think we were just naive. Um, It was more just like being in Regina and not realizing it was just as easy to drive up to Saskatoon to a brand new audience. Right. Uh, I think it it was that. And, you know, we had management that was handling everything, and I'm not blaming them, because I do remember rumblings about uh about you know us and and it just costs money to go down there so you need tour support but you know when you're signed domestically um they're not going to make any money off of uh off of you in the states um and i think we we didn't have a us deal um at that point so touring in the states they weren't about to put any money into that kind of venture um i mean why would they they had no interest in it um so I remember that conversation saying, yeah, the support isn't there for, for us touring. So we'd have to come out of our pockets. And, uh, I mean, we were doing well, but we weren't rich. I just remember being on salary, like for, for, for years where it was like, I got 300 bucks a week, no matter if we made, you know, five grand at a show or not, it was just like, 
whether you're playing or not, this is what you're getting paid. And, and we just accepted it. And it was sustenance and it was enough. And, um, you know, and I'm starting, I think I was starting to get a couple of royalty checks at that point. So I was, I was pretty happy, <laughs> but yeah, the U S the U S uh, that, you know, I, I don't know what we could have done differently at that point, aside from maybe chase a U.S. deal, which we never really did at that, at that point. Now going into the second record, you had the momentum of winning, you know, a Juno as well for best new group. Did that change anything within your, with your relationship with the record label? Does it give you um, more power into making more of the decisions or is that more pressure knowing that you have now a standard to live up to? Um, I mean, I think it was a good feather in the cap and it was nice recognition. It didn't mean uh, what it means today. I, I think, I think that, you know, awards and, and these kind of accolades are, uh, they're used uh, with a little more, more weight these days. Back then, I mean, when we won, it didn't even really seem like that big a deal. They didn't even televise that part of the, that like our acceptance or anything. Crazy. Um, it, it was between, uh, I think it was between commercials. Um, huh. But, you know, I guess going into the second record, all I really felt was just uh, overwhelming expectation um because you know our first record contained songs that we had recorded some of them two or three times and it was kind of the greatest hits of of five or six years of being together as a band or four years anyways and uh it was an easy record to make we didn't think about it we just did what felt good and um you know so going into the second record yeah we had a you know a, a label behind us but we also had you know with that is 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 the livelihoods of lots of people you know that depend on your success to sort of trickle down to them and not to mention our own we had a crew like we had two or three guys on the road with us and um i don't know i just remember thinking okay this is great but uh we're gonna need to make a really great record here and uh and for me writing has never come really you know i'm not prolific like i might write 10 songs in a year or 20 in a month or zero for six months, you know, like it's just weird how, how writing, how writing comes, comes to me. And, and I, I don't know, I think we all knew that there was uh there was some expectation to, um, you know, if you didn't sell more than your first record, then it would be deemed a failure. So, you know, going into it, we wanted to use a producer that uh, was the hottest dude in Toronto uh, had been producing some of our favorite records, still some of my favorite records of all time. Um, and we thought if we could use, Anybody that's, that's, we're going to use Michael Philip Ojuoda because, uh, because he did whale music and Melville rail statics, um, mm-hmm. and had, had just done faith lift by spirit of the West. Um, he did the Gordon record, uh, the BNLs, uh, you mentioned Ian Burton. He had, had, had did quite a, quite a bit of work with change of heart. I think. Yeah. He did smile in uh, whale music. And I think Gordon in the span of like three months or something. Yeah. Yeah. He was, he was a busy guy. Yeah, he was. He, and, uh, and a great guy. We really clicked. So, um, yeah, so we used him, um, for the production and went into a fancy schmancy studio for like a month and didn't worry about the clock. And just, it was, a it was an interesting change for us uh, to go into a studio for that length of time and, and, uh, really plot out the whole record where, you know, like my tractor was, was piecemeal. It was done at like four different studios and over, you know, five or six months. And um, so it was, it was different for us. Is there a track you think that's uh, having somebody like Michael Phillip producing the record, he really elevated 
he really took it to the next level, having somebody with that kind of pedigree behind it? You know, I mean, in general, even with like a playlist, I can say easily that, you know, he took, he took what we were doing to a completely other level um, of detail and artistry and um, just rich textures that stuff that we would have never thought about, you know, like the comparison between uh, Cox Crow and like my tractor, it's, it's, it's kind of night and day and it was probably a bit of a detriment to our career just because, you know, smart money would have had us use uh, John Switzer again and just make the same record again. Uh, same, you know, the songs hadn't really changed all that much. It was still me and Keith singing together. Um, but Michael is an artist. He was an album maker, like detail. God, I remember sitting in the studio with him. Um, we had Martin Tielli come in and do some guitar on a song. And I remember just being in awe. I was like, oh, wow, Martin Tielli's playing on a record. This is amazing. <laughs> but I think I, I was sitting there with Michael and Martin doing guitar overdubs. And it was, I think I mean, he must have done 70 takes. And every one of them, I would look at Michael and with excitement and go, that's got to be it. And Michael's like, no, 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 just trust me. I was like, what? <laughs> and this is tape day. So he'd just rewind the tape and record over it. And it's like, oh, well, I'm the only person in the world that will have ever heard Martin Tielli's amazing guitar solo on, on uh, the song. Um, what song was it that uh, Martin did some work on? Uh, it was the last track called My Eye. Come out, commit, come on. Seems so clear, all the people you hold Unaware away this day is all yours and mine when you're alone. Once more, miles away from home. Trust in me. Slip out, slip out, I slip me in There's something to be so again
um, which was, you know, when I think about it now, it's probably, I don't know, Todd, Todd Lumley had joined the band in between the two records. And uh, this record really brought him out. Um, the use of sampling and, and that kind of stuff, um, especially like in that song, My Eye, it's just full of these crazy samples of just snippets of conversations that we would have in rehearsal. Uh, Todd would always be recording with his ADAT and they landed their way onto his keyboard somehow. And it would just be like me saying, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> and it was like, that was part of the track. Uh, Heartless, Heartless Clear Blue Sky, Michael sung on with us. Um, great vocalist, great drummer. He almost was the drummer on that record because we had, uh, we had parted ways with our drummer between the two records as well. Um, end of the world. Yeah. Like, I, I don't know. Just looking down at all, it's like, these are production nuggets. Actually, he won a Juno for producer of the year for this record, which wow. probably a lot of people don't, don't know. Um, yeah. I mean, we had grown so much between, you know, in the years of doing, which were essentially demos that turned into a record to going into a studio with a, with an actual budget and being able to, you know, get guest musicians in to play on. And uh, we'd grown, we'd grown a lot. And I, and I don't know if we were, if we were going to show the world what, how much we had grown, but I think the second record is quite a bit different than the first one. First one was basically, it was like, the first one was just the, the three of us in the studio with a couple of overdubs, you know, it was a lot of live takes and yeah. So um, on the second record, did you um, write a couple songs with John Mann and Jeffrey Kelly from Spirit of the West? I did, actually. Actually, it's true. And they came in and they sing on it, a song called Surprise. And uh, again, My Eye, those were the two co-writes that I wrote with uh, with John and Jeffrey. Great guys and great experience. I, I really opened the door to co-writing um, just previous to this record because, well, I was writing for the record. So I was like, okay, who else can I write with? So I had entered into... Uh, co-writing situations um you know at the at the uh suggestion of management saying you know like co-writing is a good thing i was a little bit precious about my songs as a, lots of young writers are especially young writers with a successful first record i mm-hmm. i i'm not gonna lie i had a bit of an ego about about my writing and thought that it was pretty good um so the idea of co-writing was foreign to me and uh i guess i didn't think that i needed it but having gone down that road of uh of, of doing some co-writing um i was happy i did and was lucky to write with john and jeff from spirit of the west and another writer in in town who was in a band called Gravelberries, who actually has a really great podcast now um his name's paul myers um we wrote a song together um our mutual love of xtc um brought us together and just wrote and it made it to the record um, and it was a co-write with me and Keith for the first time. Uh, Wait Up For Me was a co-write, his idea, and I just sort of took it home. Um, now, with them, like you mentioned, Keith having a writing credit there for the first time, was that ever an issue? Like you handling all sole songwriting duties and getting, like you said, publishing money and royalties and that kind of thing since you being the, the solo writer? Well, you know, I mean, just like lots of young artists back then, we didn't know what it meant even to be, how do you split this up? You know, we didn't have Nashville experience. Um, The way we always did it was um, if I wrote the song, I wrote the song, but um, we would all share in the publishing side. So, okay. Yeah. So the, so the the guys in the band always had a stake as they should have. And, you know, looking back on it in fairness now, um, you know, some of the, some, some of the contributions that, uh, 
especially Dave, our drummer, who's one of the most creative uh, drummers, more than a drummer, you know, added uh, in this day and age and using the, the Nashville rule of, you know, in for a word, in for a third, you know, would, would, would certainly apply, apply. But I think, I think as we were going through it, the guys appreciated that I, you know, that I would bring songs and, and write the lyrics and, and sort of front the band that way. Um, and everybody was happy in their roles. And I think, I mean, there, there wasn't a lot of money for, for a while. Um, there was, it never amounted to piles of money. I mean, as a group, we only cracked the top 30 a couple of times as far as record our airplay goes. Um, I think we were just a, a good live band and that's where our success was, but no, there wasn't any, any weirdness. Uh, maybe a little bit after we parted ways with Dave and as it should have been, you know, his, his lawyer was asking for this and that, and that's just, that's the way it goes. Um, but no, I think in general, Keith, um, for sure, Keith, who I consider my sort of my lifelong partner in the Waltons, um, was cool with, with me writing the songs and had no problems with it. Um, you know, he was never a glory seeker and, and he knew that the songs, you know, at least the present presentation of the songs wouldn't be anywhere near what they what they became with him and his bass lines and his uh, harmony parts. You know, it's kind of the, the thing that we shared that was the most special thing about the Waltons. You mentioned a couple of lineup changes between the first and second record. I mean, Dave, the, the drummer uh, leading and finding a new drummer, and then also Mr. Lonely, who a lot of people know because of his work with Toxie Workman, Todd Lumley. Right. What, what did, um, was it a difficult decision to bring in a fourth member and to also replace an original member? I mean, it's got to be a difficult time within the band. I mean, it was, you know, um, I guess I'll start with, to- with Todd because, uh, or Mr. Lonely, as he's known now, <laughs> uh, he, you know, it was weird how he, how he ended up in the band. Uh, I think we were in Calgary opening for, uh, do you remember a band called Lava Hay? Of they, course, were, yeah. they were, they were, yeah, they were, ne- yeah, they were a network signing. Um, and we opened for them in Calgary and Todd was on tour with them. And, uh, he his his keyboards were set up behind us because they were coming on after us and he i remember him asking us before the show saying hey uh you mind if i sit in with you guys and we're like well do you know the songs well yeah yeah you guys used to rehearse at my roommate's place downstairs so i've I've heard all your songs i've heard you rehearsing (laughs) and we thought okay what the hell you know let's uh let's have him sit in and he sat in and it was an actual i think it was an actual b3 organ that he was able to play with us with the leslie and and when he played with us, it was like, holy shit, this is what our group is missing. This is like a pad that, you know, because we were just a trio. It was 12-string bass and drums. Um, you know, so for him to sit in, he just, he really filled out the sound. And then we started rehearsing in Toronto. I'm not sure what tour it was for. We started rehearsing, and uh, he just showed up with his keyboard and said, guys, cool, where should I set up? Like, we never really asked him to be in the band. <laughs> he just, he just kind of joined, you know, um, which... You know, and he's such he's such a great guy. He's fun to be around and super talented, like so musical and smart and uh tech savvy, like he showed us the internet one on one trip out east. He said, <laughs> Guys, check this out. I don't know what we were playing at like you know, uh memorial in Newfoundland or something, and we were in uh, one of the, the offices upstairs, um, where the club was downstairs and he plugged his little laptop into the wall and said, Guys, come here, come come look at this. This is the internet. Huh. And we'd heard about the infor- information superhighway and they showed it to us. And it was, and of course it was all code and, you know, and then we looked at it and it was like, okay, great. That looks awesome. Good luck with that. You know, 
but but he was one of these guys that understood this thing it was and he, then he became uh, kind of our artwork guy as well because he had photoshop so but uh <laughs> get on um with dave i think it became i think it became a situation where we felt like as musicians um and performers we we were continuing to grow and i think and to no fault of his own i think that um he he had hit a point where he wasn't growing uh with us um we started to we started to really get sensitive about about uh meter and tempo changes um and not realizing that it had been like that all along and and now me as a, as a as a record producer i loved you know meter that moves around and, and you know that's that's the human part of of music um i think he had really petered out we were really really going hard and um he had you know, he was in a, a relationship with a with a woman that was kind of pulling him the other way a little bit, and his attention got distracted. And we just, I, I, it was hard because you know me, Keith, and Dave, we were in it since the beginning, and uh, he he was a he was a big part of what made like my tractor and us a special band, you know. And uh, I didn't, I probably didn't appreciate it until you know years later what a force he really was with us. But just at, just at the time, it, we felt like. Okay, we're we're bummed out after every show. We're getting bummed out because it didn't feel like it was the best we could do. Hmm. And uh, you know, I, I don't think he fairly deserved the blame, but he was, you know, it's kind of like the goalie on a hockey team. It's <laughs> like it's 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 tough. <laughs> it's a yeah. tough gig to be a drummer. And uh, you know, I don't. I think his heart had had kind of left it um, at that point a little bit. So at that point, with a vacancy, are you holding auditions? Are you calling friends who are drummers and you know i mean how does it work to try to replace somebody in a successful band going into an even bigger second record well um we ended up making um cox crow without knowing who the touring drummer was going to be um and we uh we had a suggestion a couple suggestions a suggestion from um tyler stewart uh from bnl he said hey you should try it check out my roommate steve steve uh, pitkin and uh you know he came in and i think we had we might've had a couple of drummers come in to try out for the record. I think it was more Michael Phillips um, department because he was producing and, and we knew he'd make the right, the right decision. We had complete trust in him and, and Steve got, got the gig and turned into like, he's an amazing drummer. I mean, he's in uh, Elliot Brood now um, and had toured with uh, Mrs. Torrance who we took out on tour with us. And um, yeah, so, so, so Steve played on the record and then before the record came out, um weeks leading up to our sort of our support tour in support of the record we held auditions and had guys come in and uh you know sean bryson was the guy i mean he may not have been the best drummer but uh of of all of them but uh he certainly got us laughing (laughs) and uh and it was loose like i remember i was late to the audition uh he had showed up and him and keith and, and todd were already jamming and i walked in and i think they were playing I think they were playing like shaved head by the real statics uh, or something. And it's like, Oh, cool. Cool. You know, this one right on. And so we jumped in. And then I think, I think he kicked into singing Roxanne <laughs> and we just went, well, this guy's a character man. And, and solid like uh, meter wise was like a fucking drum machine. And that's obviously what we were looking for at the time. So um, nothing fancy though. Like, God, just to get him to do a fill was like, it's okay, Sean, you can step out here. No, no, I don't want to drums. I don't want any attention like that. 
so, so he was he was uh, he was solid, and very groovy. So he he got the gig, and he was my roommate for the next you know four years. Um, let's talk a little bit about the artwork for Cox Crow, because that's another interesting one. Um, is that Todd Lumley in Photoshop, or who came up with the idea of the uh, the light bright? Well, I think light bright was my idea. It just seemed nice. like a good a good progression from crayons to light bright. It just <laughs> seemed like this is a, a progression of someone's visual art skills. But uh, yeah, the uh, the layout of the grid of light bright, bright I don't know how familiar you are of the, the, the kinds of things that you can and can't do with light bright. Uh, it wasn't possible to make a, a an artwork package like we wanted. So Todd was Photoshop guy, but I remember it was quite a photo shoot just to even take pictures of uh, all the composite pieces. It was a lot of fun. Keith, uh, Keith made the uh, Buffalo head, the Buffalo skull. That was Keith's nice. creation. Um, and Cox Crow is a, is a part of the lyric from one of the songs. And again, God, this is so cocky when I think about it now, but it was like, sort of like, like, sort of like lick my tractor, I would lick my Cox Crow, you know? <laughs> so, and there's songs, I think there's two, two or three songs that are two songs for sure that are about, uh, you know, a penis on the record. <laughs> and as we flip through the pages of the booklet, you know, we, we flipped the uh, skull head upside down and it looks like, if you actually turn the record upside down, it looks like a penis hanging down. Um, I don't know. I, I, I guess I was hungry for, you know, the deep fans to find the deep meanings and to discover these things. And, and uh, I, it seems a little pretentious now that I look back on it. But <laughs> Actually, uh, before we get into the touring of that album, um, you mentioned the songs in that record. There's a song called Wascana. Hip, 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 hooray. Ones across the frozen desert, hopping islands, living cousins, trying mothers, dying grandsons. How about a holiday for the ones who fell between the cracks, carried lives upon their backs and straight by following Buffalo home? Didn't anyone ask you? Fathers who had known the mothers of the children playing cowboys, running wild and shooting real toys. Only way to really say that the leaves for the side was chosen, piled high by the thousand leaves. Wide, I creek where buffalo.
was it important for you to try to represent Saskatchewan and Regina in your in your lyrics? Was that a goal you set up for yourself in the same way, you know, Gordani would, or you know, or the or the Barrican Ladies or Real Statics would work in Ontario cities or themes? And was it important for you to work in your part of Canada into your songs? I think so. Yeah, it wasn't uh, it wasn't a guiding thing for me for sure, but you know, like the artists you mentioned, uh, you know, having, having them talk about their homeland and, and, uh, or just celebrating parts of Canada and our own history and cultures, um, and, and characters and personalities that, that great people have come out of this country. Um, I always appreciated that. Um, I always found Saskatchewan a hard word to work into a song. Uh, although the real statics did it wonderfully. Um, we were always pretty big flag wa- wavers of the province. It was, uh, you know, I every night would say hi, where the Waltons were from, Saskatchewan, Canada, nice. um, because this is we've always been really proud of uh, of where we're from, and all of our families and friends were here and uh, grew up here my whole life. So uh, this is home and always has been, and uh, and I think you know pretty under celebrated too nationally. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the Northern Pikes had, had uh, enjoyed quite a bit of success um, before us and, and during us as well. Um, and, uh, you know, they'd sneak it in as well, but they were from Saskatoon, so they didn't, they didn't represent the Reginians. Um, mm-hmm. So, I don't know. I was always pretty proud of it and would work it in. I mean, the, a song like Wascana was you know, as direct as could be, but, mm-hmm. uh, overall, overall is, you know, it's more about, um, just the European conquering of, uh, of a people, you know, in general. Thank you so much for joining us today on Raven Drool. Please support the podcast by visiting patreon.com slash rave drool. Follow or subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening to this. And if you listen to this on Apple podcasts, please give us a five-star rating and review. If you're looking for more Naughty's Can Rock content, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. Until next time, friends, take care.